Well, good morning. Hey, uh, Margie's here. Margie, wave. Everybody, give Margie a hand. So we're so glad that you're here. Um, for most of you, almost everybody knows who Margie is, but for those of you who don't, uh, she and Brad ministered here for over like 25 years or something. And one of the things that I love about this church is that in the almost two years I've been here, every time people talk about Brad and Margie, they're, it's so affectionate. And they love you guys, and I am so thankful for that. And I walk around here all the time thinking about how thankful I am for what God did through you guys. So it's good to have you here this morning. Um, so uh, we had a great men's breakfast yesterday, and uh, it was kind of cool because we went around and we just were sharing, hey, what's been on your mind recently? And it was amazing to me how just all the stuff that's been going on this year has really kind of been a weight on a lot of people. And uh, that was kind of encouraging. And just thinking about, you know, the fact that we're not in this alone, thinking about how much conflict and division and divisiveness there is in the world. I mean, we see that, don't we? There's so much turbulence. And uh, we expect that in the world. That is what Satan does. He causes problems, causes discouragement. He gets people against each other. But the church and the people of God should be so different and uh, it's kind of interesting that God's given us our first two passages of the year about people who feel like, oh, that's not fair. And, and I want, uh, last week, how God's generous grace is not fair. And sometimes we can get disgruntled when we see God's goodness poured out into the lives of other people. And we just think, that's not fair. I should have that. Or what somebody else has when it's more than what we have makes us dissatisfied. And, and kind of along that same theme, this morning, we're going to be talking about spiritual greatness. And our title this morning is that spiritual greatness is achieved by serving. It's not achieved by grabbing for it, trying to put yourself first. It's achieved by taking a step back and saying, my purpose is to love and serve God by loving and serving other people. And, uh, you know, that is actually part of how we guard against Satan's attacks. Uh, Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We have an agenda, and it's not to look out for ourselves. It is to pursue God's kingdom. And I was thinking about as challenging of a year as this has been, how God, and this is one of the things that was shared in our men's breakfast as well, how God has just done amazing things. Tom was sharing about how in the Jesus film this last year, they set these amazing goals that they thought, man, these goals are way too big. We are never going to accomplish all these things. And here at the end of two, 2020, they accomplished all those goals that they set that they thought were just too big. And I think about the amazing things that God has done in this church and that I have seen God doing in ministries in the midst of 2020 with all the things that have happened. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be thinking about that. Those things happen when we think about life the way God tells us to think about life. And we're going to see uh, an amazing passage, Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to see a few important things in this chapter, uh, we are going to see the fact that, uh, that Jesus came to die for mankind and that that was the greatest 
possible act of servanthood from the greatest person and how that is an example for how you and I should focus on our life. Jesus is the supreme example, and he is the supreme guide. Not only are we going to hear about Jesus' death, but we're going to see the disciples squabbling about who's the greatest, and Jesus is going to teach them what it means to be great. And then the third little section that we're going to look at is actually an example of Jesus again living that out. Now, just to give you a little bit of context as to where we are in the book of Matthew, uh, we've been here for a while, and we have completed 65% of it. Um, we have 35% left. Next week we, is, is the triumphal entry. Next week is usually the passage that we look at on Palm Sunday. Isn't it amazing that a third of Matthew... Um, 35% of Matthew is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, we're not even going to get to the resurrection by Easter. So there's a lot that happens in this book. And uh, it's amazing, but that's where we are. And, um, you know, one of the things that we see here as we look at this example of Jesus, a lot of people go wrong. And they go wrong by trying to follow Jesus' example, by trying to be a good person, by trying to accomplish good things without actually knowing Jesus personally. You know, that is not what the Christian church is about, being a good, better person. But this is something that is true. And that is that if you know Jesus personally, you should follow his example. And so this is a powerful passage for us. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 34. And we're going to read this passage in three sections, and then we're going we're to talk about it. The first section is we're going to see that Jesus is the supreme example of spiritual greatness. And we're going to find out that Jesus willingly gave his life. And uh, so let's, let's consider this as we'll read it together. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now, as we think about what's been happening here, um, we're going to notice that uh, Jesus is on his way into uh, Jerusalem. He started in Ephraim, we know, and he goes up and then he passes between um, Galilee and Samaria and then he comes back down and you'll see Jericho. Um, the, our last passage is going to end up in Jericho. We'll look at that a little more closely. But what's happening here is Jesus has been doing amazing things. And as he's following, there is this huge crowd that is gathering and following Jesus. And as everybody heads into Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus has this huge crowd. 
And one of the things that happens is Jesus has been talking to the disciples about how they're going to rule and how he's going to set up his kingdom eventually. And they are just so enamored and overwhelmed by, the, by the, all, the, all the people that are following Jesus, by his fame, by all the things that he's doing, that they miss the purpose that what Jesus has been saying about what is going to happen and what he is going to do. Uh, they're missing that. And so Jesus is talking about how he is going to go into Jerusalem and how he is going to suffer and die. And uh, this is the greatest example of spiritual greatness. And there's two reasons for that. One is because Jesus willingly gave his life. There are some people, as they think about the death of Jesus, uh, they feel like, oh, Jesus was here. He wanted Israel to accept him. And, and kind of things didn't go well, and he ended up dying on the cross. What we see here is that this was Jesus' purpose. Uh, he did this intentionally and on purpose. And he did that because he loves us. He came to serve us. Now, this is the third time that Jesus announces his death. Remember Matthew 16? Jesus says, um, after he says to his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And do you remember what Peter does? Peter pulls Jesus to the side and he rebukes him. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. We're here. We're going to rule. We're going to be your right-hand men. And they see Peter seeing for himself greatness. The disciples are seeing for themselves greatness. And Jesus' death doesn't fit into that. Some of the things that have been happening is that Jesus has been doing amazing miracles. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. So he's feeding thousands of people. He's healing people. There's massive crowds. And he's been mixing it up with the religious leaders, and he's been defeating them. And so the disciples have quite a different picture of what's going to happen than what really happens. And after Jesus tells, says this to Peter, and this is an amazing thing to think about, but when Peter says, no, Jesus, you're not going to the cross, Jesus responds and says, Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. One of the things that we have a tendency to forget is that when Jesus came to this earth, he took on humanity, which means he experienced life the way we experience it. In many cases, we think about Jesus as God. He's God. He has his purpose. He's all-powerful. He's amazing. All those things are true. And we dehumanize the experience that Jesus had on earth. We don't think about how difficult and how stressful and how full of challenge the life of Jesus was. And so when Peter says, don't go to the cross, we know that the thought of going to the cross was very difficult for Jesus. That was Satan speaking through Peter to Jesus. And then Jesus, right after that, reminds his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to the cross. But remember this, anybody who comes after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Part of Jesus' message is what you're about to see me go through, you need to be prepared for. So that's the first time. The second time 
is in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, There's the transfiguration right after this. And then Jesus is healing more people. And the disciples say, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't it amazing? Every time Jesus talks about dying, the disciples have their own self-promotion in mind. And Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like a child, you'll never make it into the kingdom of God. And so here Jesus is going to talk about going up to Jerusalem. And here's something that I want to just point out in this regard. Is that Jesus, he's going up to Jerusalem. He's purposeful as he is walking. Um, he's, he's walking, the, the, one of the other passages tells us that he is ahead of the other disciples. He's walking out front. He is eager to get to Jerusalem. And it says that he takes the 12 aside and he's explaining this to them. He's preparing them for the difficulty that they are about to face in his death. And it says here that he will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the scribes, and to the Pharisees. Think about this. The very people that Jesus loved, that he came to save, were the ones who rejected him. The people that should have seen him, that should have been pointing everybody to him, were against him. That's what it is talking about when it says in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Think about that difficulty. And think about that in your family. Think about that in the church where the people who are supposed to love and care for you you feel are against you, or maybe they are against you. That was Jesus' whole life and ministry. It goes on, and, and, um, and he just says this, that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he's going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be crucified, and then he'll rise again. Now think about that. That is every type of abuse that a person could go through. There's the emotional abuse. You've all heard sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I've heard that said this way. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words really hurt me. And uh, Jesus is going to face that mocking. That mocking is going to be combined with physical abuse, and then he's going to be tortured and killed. Jesus very specifically knows what is going to happen to him as he goes into Jerusalem. And this is the last week of his life. Like this moment has finally arrived. Now it's an important thing for us to remember that Jesus is our example. And Jesus actually uses this, this the fact that he's going to go and die, he uses that as an example of servanthood. But there's two things going on here. Yes, it's an example, but what happened in Jesus' life in the whole book of Matthew, it's not just about what Jesus did and what you should do. There is a theological truth here that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is God. And this whole passage is about the truth of who Jesus is. But it is also about how that truth should affect the way we live our life. And ultimately, we should have a relationship with Jesus. But secondly, thinking and understanding who Jesus was and what he did should impact how we live. And so uh, Jesus is the God of the universe. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And he's going to solve a problem that is an infinite problem. And that's the problem of sin. 
Every time a person sins, we're born sinners. The fact that we're separated from God is actually an infinite problem that, that, the, that the, the consequences of that is an eternal separation from God. And so this problem of us being separated from God is not a problem we could ever solve for ourselves. And, and it's infinite. It's eternal. And Jesus came to do what was not possible for any human to do, and that is to satisfy God's wrath, to take the consequences of our sin on himself, to die in our place and give us the opportunity for eternal life. And I'll just tell you, people who view church as a place to come and learn to be a better person, people who view the world and they think the goal is to be good, People who you say, hey, if God, if I, if God asked you, how, why should I let you into heaven? Anybody who would respond, well, I'm a good person. I've done more good things than bad. People who think in those terms, and if you think in those terms, you've made an infinite error. You are desperate. You are without hope apart from what Jesus did for you. And so, yes, this is an example of servanthood. But it is so much more than that. And so we're going to see here that Jesus is the ultimate example of spiritual greatness through servanthood, through serving others. Jesus in our next passage is actually going to make that point. And so let's look at it. Let's look at the second point that we're going to see here. And that is that Jesus is the supreme guide to spiritual greatness through servanthood. Now, Jesus' point in this next passage is that people need to serve each other. But that needs to put, be put in the fuller context of Scripture. Ultimately, if you serve Jesus, you will serve other people. It's not ultimately the human service that, that is the end. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about um, the final judgment where he gathers people together and he says to the, to the righteous, he says to them, come on this side. Well, why? Why are we righteous? Why are you allowing us to come into your kingdom? This is Matthew chapter 25, verse 30 to, to the end of the chapter. And Jesus is going to say, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. And he's going to go through this whole thing. And they're going to say, wait a second, Jesus, when did we ever see any of that about you? When did we ever do any of that? And Jesus is going to say to them, in that you did this to the least of these, you did it to me. Jesus takes personally how we treat other people. And the heart behind loving and serving other people really is just an expression of our love for Jesus. We do, we serve people because we serve Jesus. And that's the, that's the layer that needs to go over all of this. So let's read this. Now think about Jesus. He's anxious. He's stressed out. He's about to go die on the cross. And he actually knows what's going to happen. And he tells his disciples. <laughs> let's see how they respond. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And we know this is James excuse me, James and John. And kneeling before him, she said, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, 
Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. You know, how is it possible? How is it possible that Jesus says, I'm about to die? And these people, he's trying to prepare them. He's trying to care for them. And it just goes right over their head. How's that possible? In Luke's uh, account of this, in verse uh, 34 of chapter 18, it says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he was saying. There was a spiritual element to their blindness. But from a human perspective, and that's one of the things we see in life, God's sovereign over everything. What you know, what you don't know, what you understand, what you don't understand. God's sovereign over all of that. But it doesn't remove our personal responsibility. For them, they were blinded. It was a supernatural blindness. But they were blinded specifically because all they thought about was their own greatness. Now, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you know, as we read this passage, there's a few other things that we see. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever had kids that have come up to you and said, Mom and Dad, uh, before I ask you, you've got to promise to say yes. No matter what I ask, you've got to say yes. Like these are grown men who have spent three years with Jesus and they're bringing their mom. Like this was a plan of the, of the disciples and their mom. And they're like, okay, let's get to Jesus. Mom, come on, you've got to help us get them to get us in this spot. Have you ever met parents like that, the helicopter parents? Like their job is to make sure that little Johnny gets everything and all they care about is Johnny. They don't care who falls down or gets hurt as long as Johnny gets what he wants. And uh, you think about these disciples and it's not so surprising some of the things that we see in their life when you think about what's happening in the story and what that means about their life growing up. Um, it's very possible that um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee is Jesus' aunt and that James and John are his cousins. So they're jumping in there ahead of the rest of the disciples saying, hey, we're family. Put us in the position of authority and power. Um, you know, it's amazing when you think about James and John. So the, the, the closest group to Jesus were Peter, James, and John. And so these guys, for the first time, they get ahead of Peter. Usually he's ahead of everyone, and they get there first. But when you look at the character of James and John, you know, in lists of the disciples, um, there's not a whole lot of qualifications given. Um, like Judas sometimes listing the disciples, it'll say Judas who betrayed Jesus. Um, Peter, Simon, whose name was changed to Peter, when it comes to James and John, it says, James and John, sons of thunder, they were explosive. They're the ones who wanted to call down fire and burn up the, the Samaritans when they rejected Jesus. Um, they were the ones who were running around going, hey, those people, they're not with us, and they're preaching and doing things. Can we go stop them from doing what they were so self-centered? 
And one of the things that is so amazing is as you look through Scripture, these self-centered, just people always pushing themselves first, when you look at what their life was like um, after Jesus left, these men were transformed into amazing, gracious, loving men. James was the only disciple killed in Scripture that, that it's recorded. The others were martyred after the time of Scripture, but in the book of Acts, it talks about how Herod killed James. And everybody was so excited about it that he went and arrested Peter and persecuted the other disciples. So James is first in line to drink the cup. He says, oh yeah, I could drink it. Had no idea what that would mean. The apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And he, he died in exile on the island of Patmos. These men were transformed by who Jesus was. That's encouraging for us, isn't it? That if we're self-seeking and self-centered, that we can be changed the way they were. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You know, one of the things that Jesus said when Jesus talked about greatness in Matthew chapter 5, he said, blessed are you, verse 11, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Want to be great in God's kingdom? That means you suffer for Christ. People have no idea when they want spiritual greatness what that means. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you don't know what you're asking for. You want to be great. You want to be prominent. You're going to suffer. One of the things we see from the disciples is that as they suffer, they rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. When the Bible talks about suffering, um, it says, man, you get to share in the suffering of Christ. Philippians says, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his name. Like you think about that in our culture, where things are headed And people who are afraid to suffer, people who are afraid to be mocked, people who are kind of afraid, I want a good life, I want promotions, not willing to give up my job, not willing to make sacrifices in life, um, you're going to have a hard time as a believer in the coming years. But when you recognize, no, Jesus suffered, and everybody who desires to live a godly life will suffer, well, get ready. That should happen. It's going to happen, and it's going to be a blessing when it does. And these disciples, they have no idea what spiritual greatness is. So as we pray that foothills will be spiritually great, what does that mean? As we pray for each other that we will achieve spiritual greatness, what does that mean? So he just says, yeah, you're going to drink the cup. And then it says here, when the ten heard it, they were indignant with the two brothers. You know, isn't it amazing how self-centered, selfish behavior results in self-centered, selfish behavior? Um, You think about that like with kids, like one kid's selfish and then that just more selfishness gets added to it. That's actually what happens in the church is that when, when people are fleshly in the, in the church, it's like, you're going to talk about me like that. You're going to treat me that way. You don't thank me. You don't appreciate me. Look at all these things I'm doing, and it's not fair. And, and as those things all start happening, then what happens when somebody treats you that way, you respond in that same fleshly way. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and I'm going to skip some of what's in this passage, but it just says enmity, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, that kind of behavior, it makes it into Christians' lives, but that is what describes a non-Christian. Believers do not function and live that way. When a believer is treated that way by somebody else, we return good for evil. When somebody is divisive and unkind toward us, we don't respond by hating them back. We respond by treating them the way God tells us to treat them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's how Satan gets in and manipulates people in church. So it's very simple. You're hanging out with people who are mad at somebody, who don't like somebody, who's criticizing somebody. That is Satan at work. Uh, Craig preached on this, James chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, when we're going through the book of James, how where there's disorder, there is every evil thing, and that that wisdom that creates that kind of thing is earthly, natural, and demonic. So the next time you're hanging out with people that are promoting themselves or mad at somebody else in the church, just take a step back and go, yeah, this is actually what I'm hearing right here, what this person's saying to me, what is happening here. This is what happened with Peter and Jesus where Satan spoke through him. Am I going to get sucked into that, wrapped up into that, start to be against people in the body of Christ, against people I'm supposed to love and support? See, that's the disciples. They see John and, uh, they see John and James pushing themselves forward, and they're mad because they didn't get a chance to push themselves forward first. And, and how do we as a church be who God wants us to be? Well, we recognize the hand of Satan working in other people's lives. We recognize Satan when he's working in our life. I'm jealous. I'm envious. I feel like I'm not getting the credit I deserve. Uh, I start to get mad at people that God has called me to love and raise up. Okay, well, (laughs) now it's not, okay, Satan's working in their life. No, no, okay, Satan's working in my life. And we don't respond in that way. And Jesus is taking this example, and he's going to say, no. Nope. You want to be great in God's kingdom, you learn to be the servant of all. Look at what it says in verse 25. So we've kind of looked at the problem. Here's how Jesus encourages the resolution of this. Jesus, what he's going to say here, the disciples needed, but actually... Every one of us needs this. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then here's where he's going to take his death and say, here's the example. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, that is such a significant difference between Christians and the world. Everybody in the world, like it's self-promotion. Uh, pridefulness is something that is exalted. Hey, you've got to always talk about how great you are. When you're doing things at work, make sure you get the credit. Don't forget to go into meetings and mention all the things that you're doing well. Promote yourself. Exalt yourself. If you're in a, a position of importance, hey, you don't do the, the servant-hearted stuff anymore. That's for somebody else to do because now you're big. You're important. You don't do that stuff anymore. That is so different from Christians. We're not always exalting ourselves and promoting ourselves and trying to push ourselves forward. Um, we're, we're looking around and we're saying, what, what's, what needs to be done to be served here? Uh, one of the things when I was new here, it was a sad thing. As I arrived, um, a bunch of people passed away as soon as I got here. And it was really kind of a heart sore thing. Th those things always happen. Um, they happen, you know, <laughs> and just being new, it was like, oh, no. You know, these, these really difficult things. But I want to tell you something that really stood out to me. Um, the day before these funerals, when things were just last minute and people just, you know, things needed to be thrown together, um, I showed up, and when I was here, you want to know who was here who showed up last minute to set up chairs, to get the tables ready, to do all the stuff? You want to know who was here? What stood out to me is I'm looking around. Every single one of the elders was there. Uh, they were there f showing up to function and to serve. And, you know, that is spiritual greatness. And when you have people who feel like they're above doing certain things, those people should never be leaders. There are people who the thought of standing in front of a room and talking to people and people will listen to me and all, you know, those are the last people in the world that you want to promote, that you want to put in places of spiritual leadership. You want people who are servant-hearted, who are not promoting and exalting themselves, who are the servant of all. Now, Peter who was always putting himself first, right? Hey, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? Remember him? This is what he says as an older man transformed by Christ. So I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed See, he didn't forget about this glory that God had for him in the future, but all of a sudden he saw it differently. He said, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Do you love the opportunity to function and to serve and to spiritually care for people? Is that something you want to do or is it something you're forced to do? And then look at, what he goes on to say, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfailing crowd of glory. Um, what an amazing thing. As believers, we are so different. And the third thing that we're going to see here is that Jesus' servanthood it's an instructive contrast to worldliness. 
This next section is really important, and Matthew sticks it here for a really important reason. I want to mention just a couple side notes. This is also, this next section is also a passage where people really start to question the, the reliability of Scripture. Um, this this uh, account is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in that account, there are some details that are different that make people say, okay, wait a second. If it says it in these three passages, if these three things have been said, how can the Bible be accurate? So here's the two things. One, Matthew mentions two blind beggars that are going to get healed. Uh, Mark and Luke mention one. Let <laughs> I me mean, just go out there. This is easy. If you show up to church and you see... Um, you, you see two people, if I see Craig and Shirley at church, and um, Michelle says to somebody, oh, yeah, I saw Craig and Shirley. And then I walk up to somebody else, and I say, oh, yeah, I saw Craig. Is that a conflict? Like, is, is that an inaccuracy? <laughs> no. You don't have to list every single person you see. So that one's an easy one to deal with. But the other thing that happens here is that um, one of the gospel writers says, they're leaving Jericho, and they bump into two blind beggars. Another one says, they're entering Jericho. Well, okay, which was it? Are, are they leaving Jericho? Are they entering Jericho? If the Bible's really accurate, what about these? How could these things be different? Well, I just want to point this out. Um, there's two Jerichos. There was the original Jericho. That's Tel Jericho. It's on that circle there. And that's the Jericho where the walls fell down. So for the Israelites, um, if you're writing to, the, to, um, to Jews like Matthew was, and you're going to talk about Jericho, which one are you going to mention? The one that their history is rooted in. So it says as Jesus is leaving Jericho. But then the other gospel writers say as Jesus was entering Jericho, see, they rebuilt Jericho. And Herod built a temple, in, or he built a, built a palace in Jericho. That's the second one. And so he's leaving one Jericho and entering another Jericho. It's interesting, Mark, who writes to the Romans, and Luke, who's write, just writing generally to, to people, they mentioned the new Jericho, which is what a lot of people would think of. But Matthew, writing to the Jews, mentions the one they would think of. So is there a problem here? No. I, I just figured I'd, I'd throw that out there. It is amazing how often um, critics without actually even understanding things, try to create problems that if you just think rationally for a little bit are actually no problem at all. So all the people who go to Bible's Lit and they got these teachers telling them that the Bible's unreliable, college teachers telling them the Bible's unreliable, generally speaking, those are all very uneducated people who have an agenda. So, okay, Th that was all for free. A side note. So let's read what happens here. And as, this is verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them, and he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus had pity on them. He touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Um, these men are crying for help. 
And I want you to notice that they recognize who Jesus is. They call him the son of David. They see that he's the Messiah. They're calling out for help. Now, we haven't thought about, like, being blind is terrible. It would be a bummer to be blind. But to be blind in the first century, man, you were going to be in poverty. You were going to be a beggar. They didn't, they didn't have all these things. There, there was not, like, people with, there were not handicap rules. Uh, they, they didn't have, like, street crossing signs that, speak to you when you're blind so that you can hear when it's okay to go. Like, it's not the world they lived in. And this self-centered crowd, they're following Jesus. They're kind of excited to be a part of this crowd of this amazing, famous person. And you got these two blind beggars calling out for help. And they're just like, be quiet. You're interrupting us. We're in this great procession. Shut up. Go over there. You don't matter. This crowd is so harsh, so inconsiderate. And I just, want to, I just want to say so many times we can treat people that way. We're so inconsiderate. We don't think about other people's needs. All we think about is ourself. You know, as we hear these stories, it's important for us to realize these aren't just some other really bad people. This is us. And they're self-centered, and they just tell them to be quiet, and they just have this hard-hearted rebuke. You know, I think about um, what happens when as believers, we think about other people that way. I'll tell you some of the things I've seen. So youth group, uh, I used to have this youth ministry, and we would go to the church, and we would play games, and every Wednesday night we'd break light bulbs because <laughs> we'd throw balls around in the church. And uh, we had about 100 um, junior high and high school kids in a church that was about 300 people, so about a third about, about, we had about a third the number of youth. And these kids came from such rough areas, gangbangers, taggers, people who had been arrested, people with serious spiritual problems. And I would show up to church and people would complain, you know, every week we've got to replace three light bulbs. We've got broken light bulbs around the church. You know, that costs us 15 bucks a week, you know, to replace these light bulbs. It's like, have you thought about the spiritual needs of the people? The church doesn't exist to be pretty. Why are we here? We're, we're, we're here and our purpose is to make sure we got good light bulbs that don't get broken. Or is our purpose to see people come to know Jesus, to love and to encourage each other? How often do we whine and complain about the things that don't matter because we lose sight of what does matter? Or when we let petty things drive a wedge between brothers and sisters in Christ. Like that, I'll just tell you that is so frustrating to me when I see that in a church. It's like, take a step back. Remember why we're here. Oh, somebody broke a chair. Who cares? Buy a new chair. Like, that's not why we're here. We've got to protect our chairs and make sure they're good. No. We, we don't want to be bad stewards of what God's given us, but we don't exist for chairs. We don't exist for carpet. We don't exist so that our world could not be messed with. That's not why we're here. And you see, Jesus, this is the thing that is just so amazing. Verse 32. And Jesus stopped and he called to them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. You know, I just want you to know something. Jesus loves you. He has pity towards you, and he knows how you feel. And here's part of the example of Jesus. This was a devastating week for Jesus. He was under pressure. Do you ever blow up at people when you're having a tough week? 
well, this was a tough week for Jesus, and he loved people. Um, Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus is just talking about, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until this is accomplished. Jesus is talking about his emotional state during this time, and he says, I'm in distress. And Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. I want you to know something. Jesus' difficulty makes him understand you. And when you're struggling, when you're going through a hard time, you've got to be able to take a step back and be understanding toward other people that are hurting. In some sense, when you're having a bad day, that should make you more patient toward other people who are having a bad day. And I want you to, there's two things. Yes, there's that example of Jesus. But the other thing I want you to know is those blind people, when they were hurting, when they needed help, they called out to Jesus and he helped them. And I want you guys to know, Jesus loves you when you're in trouble. He's the one that you should call out to, and he'll help you. And uh, as the body of Christ, we recognize that. We want to be examples to each other of that, and we want to model that, and we want to make sure that we're thinking rightly about life. And guess what? If we can do these things, this is going to be a great year for ministry. If you can do these things, this is going to be a great year for your family. And so I'm kind of excited to see what 2021 holds. And these are some of the things that I need to be working on. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks so much for your kindness, Lord, that you love us, that you are compassionate, that you come to make a a way for us to be right with you. And that, Lord, you teach us to just be faithful and just to be committed to serving. Lord, to never worry about whether or not we're being appreciated or getting credit. But, God, that we just humbly serve. To never be unhappy that we're not put in positions that we want to be in, but to just be thankful for any opportunity that you give us to serve. I pray that this would be a great year of our church family each of them using their gifts to function, to serve, to do things of eternal value. In your name, amen.